Little lives in Wake Forest, North Carolina, with his wife Nancy, who we're delighted is with us this evening as well. They have one daughter, Anne, who's married with two children, and they live in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Little was my professor in my first year of Bible college. Well, like me, we've both forgotten those days, and that's probably good for both of us. I was a brand new convert. I was maybe six months old in the Lord. And that's probably not the class a brand new baby needed to be sitting in, though at the end of the semester, I was grateful I did. The class, if I recall, the title was a History of Christian Thought. And it's funny because as I was cleaning my office about a month ago, I came across one of my papers that Dr. Little had graded. And wow, I didn't know you could get so much red ink on one paper. <laughs> the funny thing was, as I was reading it, I think, and this is a paraphrase, but it was something to the effect of, Jeremy, I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> That's a paraphrase. But uh, the funny thing was, yeah, I, I, don't, I read it again, and I don't know what I was saying. So. <laughs> but I do remember this. I remember as I sat through that semester, one thing that burned deep in my heart was this. I had gone 25 years living a life in sin and away from the Lord. And as a brand new Christian, my faith was everything to me. It was my life. That's why I was there. And I was challenged to know what I believe and why to believe it. And I thank you for that. And so it's with great pleasure that I introduce to you one of my professors, <laughs> Dr. Bruce Little. Please welcome. Well, good evening. Uh, I'm going to step over here and hope I can stay out of the way so that you can see that and not me. Um, uh, somebody, I'm trying to, can we get the slide up? Well, you told me, hold the button until it turned green. It's green, gentlemen. And would you doubt a philosopher? No, sir. Okay. All right. And oh, I guess we I can't do anything without PowerPoint, so I'm stuck right here. I'm on pause. And my PowerPoints, just so that you're not getting too excited, my PowerPoints have no pictures. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, you'll have to make do with text. And I hope that uh, will be okay for you. And since my eyesight isn't that good, I'm not sure I can read what's back there. But I apologize. I'll probably turn uh, to look this way. I want to speak tonight um, on just the whole issue of apologetics. Um, what is it? And why is it important? Uh, Os Guinness, 
and some of you may know or have read something of Os Guinness, in his latest book, and the title of which is Fool's Talk. It's a marvelous book. He said the divorce between evangelism, apologetics, and discipleship, and the failure to appreciate the true human diversity is deeply serious. And while we are ready to share the good news of Christ with people who are open, we are less effective when we encounter people who are not open, not interested, and not needy. They simply don't care. You come to their house, and you're just full of zeal, because you know Jesus saves, and they've got a can of bud in their hand, and the football game is on, and they'd really rather be there than listening to you. Uh, here we go. Uh, the whole matter of apologetics, until somewhere, probably around the 1960s, if you read the literature, there's not a lot of literature uh, in the 20th century, until you get to somewhere in the 1950s, but really you don't see anything until the 1960s. Somebody like Edward J. Carnell in 1948, wrote his book on apologetics. Most people today don't even know the name Edward J. Carnell. Uh, But he was an amazing individual, and his book on apologetics is really a good book, but nobody really cared about it. And unfortunately, it affected him mentally, because he thought, Everybody would be aware, want this. You have to remember now, 1945, World War II, and how that had just upside-downed everything. We've been told by the liberals that the world is really getting better and better. And then we found out that it's not. The church, and this is a word I may use occasionally, at least in the Western world, The church had what we call presumption. Now, presumption is simply the position you have, and you are assumed to be right, and somebody has to prove you wrong. It's the very same concept you have when you go to court, right? You're presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that was the position that Christianity had in the Western world, and in particular in America. But things began to well, shall we say, fall apart in the 1960s. Uh, Those of us who lived through it, there are some of you who here might have lived through it, uh, but those of us who did wondered what would ever happen to our country. So we have then a Francis Schaeffer, who in 1968 published his book, The God Who Is There. Schaeffer had been, had delivered many of these key ideas now just 50 years ago, at Wheaton University, Wheaton College, and he was called to speak in 1965 to deliver the uh, spiritual emphasis service. And it was five days, you know, it was common in those days for Bible colleges to spend uh, a week in revival, a Bible study, uh, something of that nature, and Francis Schaeffer, and Francis Schaeffer's message in the, what became the God who was there, exploded the evangelical world. 
And from that point on, more and more people took notice of apologetics, but not that many. We also have somebody like Josh McDowell, who in 1972, evidence that demands a verdict, Norm Geisler, was one of the, I would say, one of the really first uh, strong evangelical uh, apologists that evangelicals in this world, in this country, read. Uh, People were not reading Schaefer. Schaefer was living in Switzerland in a little place called Waymo, and he was within the Presbyterian denomination, and much of his speaking kept on in within the Presbyterian until uh, somewhere in the late 70s when uh, you know, he does a, a film and a book called How Should We Then Live? Then he did uh, a book and a film called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And that was done with Everett Koop, who served as our Surgeon General for some time. And these books and films are still being read, films are still being shown today, and by the time we reach in the late 70s, early 80s, apologetics, this idea of defending your faith, is catching on. And the reason for it is that Christianity in the Western world had lost presumption. We were no longer considered to be right. And you are now, you think, well, what must it have been like then? Well, it's really not as bad as it is right now. But we are simply living through the fruits of what was then. Since then, since uh, this time, there's been an explosion of evangelical literature, seminars, workshops, parachurch organizations. Some, uh, this is, uh, uh, for those of us who are trying to speak Christian truth and repose Christian mind, uh, we want to talk about tonight, what are some of the advantages, and what are some of the things that apologetics has done for us as evangelicals, as we've sought to defend our faith in the face of continuing and increasing objection to the truth claims of Christ. No longer is it thought God to be a plausible idea. Not even plausible. It is just assumed that science has given the last word And Christians need to just get with it. So fortunately, we have had a number of individuals and organizations, such as Rosho Christie, Indivarsity, Campus Crusade, and the list goes on, doing some great work, as we shall see, in universities. But there are some concerns But I want to start with the positive, which I think that might help. And what are some of the things that we are grateful for? Well, there's been an increase in volume, and in some cases, the quality of apologetic ministries, particularly to university students. And that is because we realized that the universities had been lost by Christianity. 
and I don't want to go into that story, but if you read George Marsden's book, From Belief to Unbelief, he tells the whole story of how Christianity or Christians gave up their place in the university. And the university became a hotbed in the 1950s for existentialism, um, where that led to all this rejection of authority. For those of us who remember those days, burning, uh, attacking the administration buildings, burning. It was also the time of the Vietnam War. There was great dissatisfaction with our president, with our administration. All of this was going on, and we realized that the university was a key place for uh, the work of apologetics. So we're grateful for what we have there. Ratio Christi University, Crew, which is Campus Crusade, now known as Crew, many denominational campus ministries, uh, the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptists, have uh, their uh, university uh, campus ministries as well. Then we have the rise of skilled apologists defend the faith. Some of you may know people like William Lane Craig, uh, my good friend John Lennox. Uh, some of you may have seen him, uh, just a marvelous fellow, has a, a wonderful spirit about him. Um, one day uh, I had invited John, he was speaking at uh, the seminary, doing a series for us when I was the director of the Center for Faith and Culture. And so I, we did an interview. And I said, John, I always like doing an interview. And so we sat down in this place, and the people doing the interview, taped interview, said, now everybody turn off your phones. And so we all did that dutifully, turned off our phones, and took John back to his place to stay. I picked him up that afternoon in late early evening to go to dinner. He came out of the house shaking, kind of scratching his head. He said, oh, Bruce. He said, I just got a call from his wife. Uh, she was in Oxford. That's England. And she said to me, John, that was a marvelous interview. Well, John said, how in the world did you hear that? Has it gotten on the radio already? Oh, no, no, she said. I heard it on your phone. <laughs> when he put his phone in, it hit that button, dialed the last number. I think poor John had a phone bill of about $300. <laughs> Ravi Zacharias, some of you know. Now, I'm just naming a few. There are many out there today, and they have taken the, the truth of Christ, and they have confronted atheists and the objectors and done a marvelous job at it. There's an explosion of literature, uh, just as uh, your pastor was showing all the resources. Think of all the books. If you were to look at the books for apologetics published, before 1960, you know, you could put them in a very, probably rather small bag. But think of all the books that are published today. Um, the internet sites. Now, I have to say, not all of this, in my estimation, is a plus. And I'll say a little bit about that. Res there's a resurgence of interest in theism in general. 
That is, particularly within philosophy, we have different, uh, matter of fact, two of the uh, largest uh, philosophy societies are actually Christian. The Society of Christian Philosophers and Philosophia Christi. So, and you can even go on campuses and discuss with academics theism, but I'm saying in general. So I think that's, uh, that's a plus. Because a worry that I have is that we may be only interested in ideas and not so much the truth. That's a, something we always have to be concerned about as apologists. That we're not just all, all taken up with, uh, you know, debating ideas. This is about truth. It's about life and death. It's not a game. Not to make us look smart. I often tell my students, it doesn't take a lot to show up the erroneous or the fallacious arguments of many people today because they don't know how to make an argument. But if that's all you're looking at doing, well, all I can say is shame on us because that's not what it's about. Um... Something like uh, Discovery Institute, who have done some marvelous work in the area of science. Uh, New interest in apologetics in Europe, even though Europe tends to be uh, rather a rather strong atheistic orientation. I don't know if it is still true. Czech Republic was thought to be the most atheistic country uh, in Europe. I don't know if it still is. Uh, I'm, a, as you notice, in my bio, we call it ALF, but European Leadership Forum. And every year we meet uh, in Wisla, Poland, and we have somewhere around 600 leaders, Christian leaders from all over Europe, coming to be trained, not only in apologetics, but they are being trained in apologetics. Then there's the Eastern European Leadership Forum, which only targets uh, leaders, Christian leaders in Eastern Europe and Central um, Asia, and we'll have three or four hundred there. Of course, right now, uh, it's difficult to get everybody to gather because we usually meet in Kiev, Ukraine, and you know all the difficulties that have been going on there. I've been involved in a year-round uh, mentoring, apologetic mentoring program for the last five years, or more. That's where I meet with uh, key leaders in Europe, uh, and we meet twice a year. We discuss apologetic issues. We do training, and then I, throughout the year, we do using uh, uh, a webinar platform, and we continue that year-round. There's the Cambridge Scholars Network, which is where they bring in 12 or 15 key people, Christian PhD students, they're not, uh, they are Christian, they, but they will be in neuroscience, uh, literature, it's quite of a mixed group, but they all come and we're trying to help them. How do you think in your discipline as a Christian? Uh, how do you deal with neuroscience as a Christian? There, we've, as I've said, been doing lectures in state universities, especially in Eastern Europe, There are so many apologetic ministries that are springing up in Europe, both East and West, such as Sergei Golovin has an extensive ministry of seminars and videos and the translation of apologetic 
um, uh, books. Uh, I'm slated to be in uh, Russia, where we will tape probably 12, uh, 10 or 12 uh, hour sessions on apologetics. And then there's a ministry over there that simply dubs in different languages and uh, puts all of that out on the internet for free. So there are a lot of good things that are happening. And we should be very grateful for it. That there are people who are, as we say, you know, standing in the front and for the cause of Christ. Now, having said that, what are some of my concerns? And I wish I didn't have to mention what are some of my concerns. But every good thing, I guess, has the chance of going awry. It loses its vision, sees, forgets what it's up to. Number my first concern is that apologetics is often viewed as only something professionals can do. Let's, hire, let's bring in the hired gun once a year, and he'll do an apologetics conference for us. That's it. And they'll whip out their very extravagant arguments, and they will talk about irreducible complexity and ontological arguments and the teleological arguments, and you're all sitting there saying, boy, that is really wonderful. And then if you're outside, you say, now what did you, what, what did you learn? Well, it was a lot of information. No, the question was, what was learned? And the truth of the matter is, the average person, unless you've got a science background, the whole idea of uh, irreducible complexity and uh, uh, design arguments are probably not going to be usable for you. And I, and I think it's turned a lot of people away. They simply think, you know, these, are, these folks are like the hired gun, as I say. They, you just go around and, and you feel good about it, right? You do. You really feel good. You say, oh, great, there's arguments for my faith, and I'm so glad for that. And you are encouraged. But what can you do with it afterwards is a big question. The assumption is that apologetics is only about complicated arguments. Now, I'm not against arguments. Arguments are important, of course. But we have to be careful that we are not uh, committed to say, oh, if I can't do that, you know. Now, what was, what was the second point to the ontological argument? Uh, I don't remember. Or you go out and you think, I'm going to try this one on my, my atheist friend. Oh, good. And you get about two steps and he or she just cuts your legs out from under you, and you thought, but that was such a good argument when I heard it. Well, it probably was a good argument, right? But you just didn't really know how to get at it. So, and that's not, please understand, I'm not making a criticism. That's not a criticism um, at all. Uh, all of us have limitations. That's all there is to it. Somebody say, oh, have you read this book? I say, no, I've read that book. Why haven't you read that book? How many books am I going to read in a year? Some may say, will you debate this person? I say, no, I don't debate that. I, don't, I, I, don't, I do not debate scientists. Guess why? I'm not a scientist. Right? I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to stand in front of a thousand people and somebody make mincemeat of me. So, I, since I have a choice, I only debate philosophers. And I'm not, that's, that's fine. 
but it's very narrow. So everybody learns, where am I the best? And that's the same thing for you. All of you have different people that you are good at, you have relationships with. If we can help you to share, the, not just share Christ, but be able to engage, to persuade, to be able to ask the right kind of penetrating questions, to have some idea how they might be answered. Number two, apologists often come across as arrogant, argumentative, and even belligerent. I've seen too much of it. Win the argument at any cost. I remember I was debating the name to be blanked out at a university campus and it is true that it could have gone better for him, but <laughs> afterwards, a young man came up on the platform and he said, Dr. Little, I don't understand you. I said, what's your problem, son? He said, you had him on the ropes. Why didn't you give him the knockout punch? And my only command, my only response to that was, because that's not what Jesus would do. I'm not there to humiliate. If you saw the argument had been made, why would I humiliate somebody? Right? He's a human being. And there's too much of that knockout punch that I fear has given apologetics a bad name. And people say, well, I, if that, you, don't, you don't trust in the Holy Spirit. You just, you just bank in all, all of your arguments and you can make a good argument. You can learn how to debate people. Listen, you can learn how to debate if you want to take the time, if that's all it's about. So I'm very concerned about that. This idea that it's all about winning the argument. Well, of course, <laughs> I want to admit now, I'm very upfront with you, I like to win the argument. Don't you? Of course we do. But at any cost? What if we win the argument but lose everybody that's in the auditorium that night because of the way we behaved ourselves. What have we gained? Seriously. And we have to think about that. How do we treat people? Debates, I fear, sometimes are more like sporting events. You know? One for the Christian. <laughs> well, half a point for the atheist. Matter of fact, I have tried to only do debates that are organized by philosophy departments in universities. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it otherwise. I'm only saying for myself. And the reason for that is that often all that come, well, the bigger portion that come to those debates are Christians. And when you make a point and you, the atheist doesn't have a response, everybody starts clapping. And I just want to put a hood over my head. Now, I'm glad they think we've scored a point. But you know, that's not a good spirit, folks. Just not a good spirit. Hard to say that God loves you and then turn around and treat you as if you are an enemy. I learned something from Francis Schaeffer. Well, not something. Some things. 
But one thing has stood out in my mind for many years. Schaefer would say, when you see a person in front of you, first, you do not see a sinner. You see a human being. Now, are they sinners? Well, yes, so are we. Surely they're sinners. But when you start thinking of them as only being a sinner, it's like all you're interested in now is to move the block from here to here, regardless of how you might do it. But if you see it's an individual, made in the image of God, humanness, true humanness, a man with hopes and fears and dreams, a man who probably, or a woman, who probably has no, you know, didn't get out of bed one morning and just say, you know what I'm going to devote my life to? I'm going to devote my life to making Christians just plain miserable. Now, there may be some people like that. I don't know. I don't think that's the major of the atheist. Atheists really believe where they are. They just really do. Now, we may think they're wrong. I, I do. But we still should treat them with respect. And it, it shouldn't be a sporting event. It shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be taking, keeping score. We must ask ourselves if it is a debate we love or is it God and our neighbor that we love? What motivates me? Paul's, what motivated Paul to travel across the Roman world at great risk of his life? He said, the love of Christ constrains me. There's a great quote. I must I have it somewhere, I guess. Maybe it will come up next. Uh, Again, apologists often come across this argument and even belligerent concern only about their reputation. Here is a word from C.S. Lewis. You ever read The Great Divorce? Um, don't try to scrape Lewis's theology out of that. But at The Great Divorce, if you remember, there's the spirit and there's the ghost. And the ghost has been able to come up from hell to get a view of what heaven might be like. And the spirit and the ghost will interact. They converse. And here we have a little conversation. And the, um, the spirit tells the ghost, who is so proud of all of his achievements and all the accolades he got, this is what the spirit says. Every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from the love of the thing he tells to the love of the telling. Now, folks, that is serious. I've often wondered sometimes if that's not true of many preachers. They started out loving the thing of which they told and then end up just loving the telling of it. Loving to hear the sound of our own voices. And I'm a pre I was a preacher. I, well, I stood behind the pulpit. I doubt I was a preacher, but anyway. So, until down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. For it doesn't stop at being interested in paint, you know. They sink lower, become interested in their own personalities, and then in nothing but their own reputations. That's a serious word to all of us, and particularly 
apologist. Number three, concern, apologists give the appearance of not acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm not suggesting that they don't. I don't know of any particular apologist who sort of scoffs at the idea of the Holy Spirit. It's more about the way we go at the task. As if we're on our own in all of this. And that we're the ones who can actually argue somebody into the kingdom. Well, if that's what you think you can do, you're going to get tired real quick. (laughs) Not only that, you won't probably have too many people in the kingdom. I don't think that apologists think about this. It's just the way they go about it. Anything we do, an argument that we give, a piece of evidence that we offer, unless the Spirit of God used that, it's just that. So we always keep that in mind. What can I say that the Spirit of God can use? And the only thing the Spirit of God can use is truth. Sometimes, people think about, isn't it just enough to give the gospel. Well, is it? Do you believe the gospel is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth? Yes. Well, so do I. But, as we move around people who have walked so far away from God and have such strong objections to God, apologetics can simply help to, as we say, take down barriers and build bridges But ultimately, at the end of the day, they must hear the gospel. For that's the only thing is the power of God under salvation. One of the things that I have made as a practice when I debate, I usually you get at the end, you get eight minutes uh, to summarize. I usually take five to summarize my argument. And I'd give three or more, four minutes, to give him my personal testimony. Why? It's not a part of my argument. But I think I need to be faithful to Christ. I need to, tell, need to show people that I'm arguing more for God. I want to tell you people that I'm not just arguing for this particular God, but I'm talking about a God who loved me, sent his son to die for me, etc., etc., and give my gospel and give the gospel, and give my testimony. Is that my argument? Absolutely not. I don't insert it as my argument. I just think faithful to Christ, I need to give my argument. Uh, I need to give my testimony. Um, I say this is often a result of the attitude or tone in which apologetics is done. Uncritical use of social media. Now here, if you've got rotten apples, they can probably throw some at me, because we've just become so enamored with social media, which is really anything but social. Uh, But uh, we think that you have some clever tweet. I guess that's what you call it. And that's apologetics. uh, How many characters do you get in a tweet? How many? 144? 140. It's going down. Is that your final answer? 
That's Diana Philander. Now, I'm not a Luddite, but we have put too much weight on social media to do the personal work of apologetics or witnessing in general. A post to Facebook or some other media venue. We think we've done something. I'm not saying it can't be used, honestly. I just think my point is we're putting way too much weight on it. You cannot substitute anything for person-to-person involvement. And that's why you all need to be apologists, because <laughs> you're all evangelists. How you go out there and speak to, to Jane and Jim and Billy and Mabel and whoever else is out there and ask you a question. How might you respond to that? How much time do Christians use on social media? Ah, I, I know you, it can be used, so please don't hear me saying that uh, you, you can't use it. Um, I remember that I received an email from a Russian intellectual and he had read one of my books because four of them were in Russian. I don't speak Russian. They were translated. And he said, I got my email and he wrote to me and he said, I'm an atheist and I wanna, I'd like to ask you questions. And so for the year, one year, maybe a little more, I emailed Dima every morning, five days a week. I would come in because we were on different time zones he would have a question, I'd give. And finally, after a year, he said, well, Bruce, I think you've answered all my questions. I, I think we just can stop this right now. And I said, fine. It was right after 9-11 that I received an email from Dima. And he said, I first want to write to you and tell you how deeply sorry I am for your country and your deep loss. He said, I also want to tell you that I become a believer in Christ, and I am involved in a local church now. Now, I wasn't the only person involved in his life. There was uh, Sergei, the Bible teacher, who was also involved. So I want to say I've used it, and I think you can. I just fear that we're putting too much weight on that and not enough on the personal, the one-to-one. I travel, as you know, to uh, make a number of trips. I have... Uh, to do the face-to-face. No vetting. One of the problems with social media is it's just not a medium for, social, for serious discourse, folks. Who takes... Oh, what you do in social, uh, social media, what you're doing is... You, you, it, <laughs> oh, I'm going to say this really kindly and then the yeah, private to back up. It, it comes out of na- a narcissistic complex. We just like to... Know that, boy, our name is up there. Look what we just wrote. Bingo. Oh, five people tweeted it. Wonderful. So what? Jared Lanier. Anybody know the name? In the 1980s, Jared Lanier is the one who crafted virtual reality. He is now traveling all over the world. He's a brilliant man. He is waving the flag and telling us the danger 
of social media. He said it has destroyed political discourse. And you have an example of that in the last election. I'm afraid it's destroying theological discourse as well. Oh, there he is, Jared Lanier. Ah, concern, the uncritical use of media. Social media obscures the personal. Uh, Christianity is personal, so we must be careful social media is not overdone. Okay? Um, There is a stream of literature, not Christian, a stream of literature warning us against the dangers of social media in what it is doing to personal relationships and socialization. I could I just mention uh, Nicholas Carr, The Shadows, Hubert Duf, uh, Dreyfus, On the Internet, Sherry Turkle, uh, who written two books, Life on the Screen, Alone Together. She's a clinical psychologist at MIT. There are studies been done in university after university that say in that after social media, people have become more depressed, more sense of alone, more isolated. Listen, those, those people are just telling us We should have known that. We're social beings. Remember remember what happened? Now you're trying to think, if you can remember far enough back, to answer my question. Do you remember what happened to Cain when God judged him? What was his punishment? It's all right, you could answer if you know the answer. Well, He was put out of the community. And he said, what? This is a burden too hard to bear, or something of that nature. We're social. When God sent the Savior, he didn't didn't send a hologram, hologram. He came in person, interacted, well, let me go on. Um, overdependence on technique. The age of technology, Os Guinness says in his latest book, the age of technology and technique is the age of endless methods, formulas, recipes, seminars, how to do manuals, 12-step programs, and the constant lure of efficiency. Here's, a, here's a five steps that you can use to win people to Jesus. I wish people were like that. No, I don't. Because that would mean we're all alike. And that's no fun. Right? Diversity is a wonderful thing. Seldom do you ever meet two people, even of the same ilk, who will come up with the same questions, have the same problems. And unless we learn how to ask questions, how to listen Catholic. Oh, we don't listen, do we? We're evangelicals, I forgot. We've got all the answers. So what we're busy at is answering questions that nobody's asking. We're good at that because that's in the three steps. But can we listen? Francis Schaeffer was one of the greatest human listeners. I've spoken to people around the world and when I talk to them, they say, oh, I came to know Jesus Christ under Francis Schaeffer. 
I remember of talking with a lady who was his uh, international secretary for 40 years. She was an opera star, came to Christ. She said, I remember that day that I walked as Francis Schaeffer, just a little up in the mountains above Waymo, asking me questions, listening to me, and finally said, do you want to accept Christ as your Savior? She said, yes. Then she got out her Bible as I'd interviewing her, and she said, do you, can I read you the four questions that Francis Schaeffer asked me that day? But he asked those questions after he had long talks with her, knew who she was, what her questions were. That takes time, takes interest. We're trying to persuade people, and that is as much an art as it is a science. I don't mean manipulate people, I mean persuade people. Not just with our words, but with our heart and our attitude. Schaefer suggested in 1965 that the 20th century there is nothing so important from our pulpits and in our classrooms as to stress the reality of being a human being. Men are killing themselves for they cannot find meaning for or a way to be human beings. And that has not changed. It's the same thing today. Apologetics, and I'll do this one quickly. Apologetics is divorced from the life of the church. And I'm quite sorry to have to say that. Don't take an offense. You're here tonight. So, you know, I'm not, uh, this is not about uh, beating up on the church. I'm talking about the church in general. We are not sharing or revealing an apologetic for Christ by the, how we live together, how we manage our finances, how we deal with troubled members how we do ministry, how we do evangelism. We think as long as our message is okay, we're kind of free to do whatever we want to do as long as the end is accomplished. You know our goals? Got to meet them. It's only a short step, folks, from having a good goal, so I'm not against goals or plans, but it's a very short step before that goal consumes you. And you are not concerned about how you reach the goal, only that you reach the goal. But our Lord is as concerned about how we do things as he is what we do, isn't he? Too much emphasis on being relevant today without knowing what relevance even means. Skinny jeans and ripped t-shirts is probably not being relevant. You know what really being relevant is? Being relevant is answering the questions that boil in the heart of every human being. Do you know what they are? Do we take time to listen? What are those questions our young people are asking? Are they just looking for a good buddy? Or do they want somebody? I'm not afraid of it. It's okay to be a good buddy. Are they looking at someone who can answer those questions that bother them, that trouble them, that trouble all human beings? Oh, maybe not when you've got all the Pepsi and the popcorn and the pizza you need. But you know, there comes a day when you turn the light out at night and the head goes on the pillow. You wake up in the middle of the night. You tend to think more soberly then. What are the questions? Are we asking young people not what they want. They don't know that. 
What are their questions? What troubles them? What about techniques and methods we use to get people in the church to make them feel comfortable? We've got to make people feel comfortable. Oh, I like comfortable chairs. That's fine. But, you know, everything's got to kind of go. So when they move, come in from the world into the church, well, we don't really need to be too much difference there because they may not feel comfortable. How do we package the gospel? Well, anyway, anyway, I'll just go on. How do we get that way? That was... It must be the devil. <laughs> or maybe it's just God telling me to stop. <laughs> ah, there we go. Oh, don't move. I wonder sometimes people, if we don't look more like a mall than we do a church. I'm not talking about your church. I'm talking about in general. We have to give everybody all the choices they need. Right? We adopt ways. The church has adopted too many ways that are bound to the idea of progress as developed in a, in a naturalistic worldview. Um, it has created an ethos of consumerism in the church. Efficiency and convenience drive much of how we do and what we learn that from our culture. Oh, it's more efficient. We can get the gospel out to more people. But we must ask ourselves the question, not only what does technology do for us, but what does it do to us? I think it doesn't leave us as it found us, which is another story. Neil Postman said, along with progress, they developed a profound belief in all principles through which invention succeeds, objectivity, efficiency, expertise, standardization, measurement, and market economy, and of course, faith in progress. Everything could be couched now in some economic terms, with economic solutions, even in Christianity, polls and surveys and standard of living, percentages, increased numbers and bottom line profits, all lead to an ethos of consumerism and I fear we've taken too much of that sort of thing into our, into our own lives as Christians without thinking uh, how that can affect us. Uh, happiness is, uh, well, that's the big thing, isn't it? We ought to be happy. And how do you get happy? What's important is what's new, isn't it? But how does that work for the church? We have a message that's anchored in history. And we have a culture that despises history. Don't we understand that when we pick up this idea of progress within a naturalistic worldview, that we are despising history, and then we turn up and stand up and preach a gospel that's anchored in history? Do you see how those things maybe don't go together very well? Everything gets measured in quantitative terms. Even moral things do. They get measured in quantity. That's when we know how to measure anything. Humanity is losing its face. You know what um, Lewis said, don't you? Well, he said a lot of things. Lewis said, friends walk side by side, but lovers face to face. 
we're losing the face of humanity. When the church accepts controlling ideas of convenience, efficiency, and assessing the use of technology and ministry, it creates the same ethos of consumerism. Unfortunately, many people who come to our churches feel more like a product, a consumer. Well, unfortunately, the church seems to think that as long as its message stays the same, that all is well. There's a general view that the medium and the message are unrelated, and I would argue all against conventional wisdom. By adopting so much bound to efficiency and convenience, we create an ethos of consumerism, and that ethos will overpower the message. It will overpower the message when the message and the ethos are in competition. Believe me, when you go to the mall, you could go to the mall with absolute resolution, you're not going to buy anything. And when you leave the mall, you've got a bag with you, right? With goodies in it. Why? Because you, oh, I forgot, we need. No, that's not what happened. The consumer, the ethos of consumerism <laughs> overpowered your good reason. What I would like to see, and with this I will stop, what I would like to see, and I'm not saying the church is not serious, I just think we have not realized what, what is happening to us, and I think it has a great danger for apologetics. So an apologist ought to be able, any one of you ought to be able to be sharing Christ, answering, defending the faith, listening carefully, treating others like human beings, and then you should be able to say, if you want to know how this really looks in everyday life, come to my church. That's what we need to see. And that will have a phenomenal apologetic value. Not just me, the individual, but the church collectively. I think it was Tertullian who said, not that he saw a Christian that convinced him, but he saw Christians with a plural. Well, may God help us to work through that. Do a little better job at it. I hope that apologetics is not a scare thing for you, but it might excite you as a possibility for every one of you. And now for the rest of the week, or not week, excuse me, you're off the hook, it'd be for only a day or two. You're going to be learning some things. But just remember, all those things you learn, you're always in contact with a human being. That's important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time to gather. May you use it for whatever it's worth, for the good of your kingdom, to encourage your people for they, I know, are desirous to be faithful to you in every way. And may it be, Father, that as we encourage one another, that we grow together, and that, our Father, we become that body that you speak of in Ephesians chapter 4, that men and women might be able to look at a community of faith and see, not paper people, but see what it really means to be redeemed and live together as community. And then, maybe our arguments have more power. Well, we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name.
Amen. And I think, uh, like Forrest Gump said, that's all I've got to say about that. No, I take questions. Yeah, any, sure. any questions you may have at this point? We have approximately uh, 15 minutes left um, in the evening. If there's any questions that you'd like to ask Dr. Rowe at this time. And they could be about anything except my finances. <laughs> yes. Uh, Neil Postman. Neil Postman is dead. Uh, well, you didn't ask that question. You asked, what else has he written? Neil Postman was, I don't think he was a Christian. He is considered to be the authority on media and communication. And he learned from McEwen. And, well, let me stop there. What has he written? One of the best books that he has written. The first one that most people read was Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's when he was still back in the 80s talking about what television was doing to us. Then he is... uh, in the late 90s, he wrote a book called Technopoly. And I just highly recommend that book to everybody who wants to understand what's happening. Technopoly. He has written other ones, but I think those are the, the two best. Uh, there's work coming out now. There's, um, I'm not sure if McLuhan or Postman uh, coined the term uh, media ecology. But there's a society of media ecology. I belong to that. There are conferences that are done. A lot of them, those people are unbelievers, but they really do. They're, they're well-schooled. They're well-trained. And they're understanding what's happening in this communication explosion that we've had. So, but yeah, Neil Postman. Yes. Well, how would you judge the importance of, uh, you know, making apologetics and evangelism more widespread on social media, seeing as social media is becoming part of the existentialism movement, I guess you could say, as people are creating more of themselves online and on their social media profiles, it's really fueling that existentialism, and I think evangelism being used in that area could be a key focus point. Uh, of course, knowing everything you said, it's kind of talking to people think about it <laughs> Yes, and you're probably going to think, uh, yeah, he may come down and strangle me. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's what I would say, and, and it's kindly and it's balanced. And I want to stay balanced. I think we ought to use less of it, not more of it, because we know what it's doing. And if anybody should take the lead in turning it around, I think it ought to be believers, because we have a real reason for it. I would say the same thing for what we're doing. I'd be very careful here. But let me just say, very general. Um, you know, Sunday school classes just use videos. Um, we're losing a generation that cannot write. Social media is contributing to that. I think Christians, because we have a Christian worldview, we are people of the word. Arthur Hunt has written a book, Arthur Hunt the Third has written a book called The Vanishing Word. It's a marvelous book, extremely well-researched. We are people of what? The book. And the word is important. I've got a young lady doing a master's thesis right now in Malaysia. 
Uh, I just happen to be her supervisor, and that's what she's writing on, and she's done some really good research. What's out there? So my thought is, rather than us thinking about doing more because it's efficient, we really should think about how can we do better and maybe more going <laughs> personally than uh, just the efficiency of social media. My, one of my main concerns is that social media is not a medium of serious discourse. So why would we talk about a message that men and women have died and are dying for in a medium that t is, is not even a serious medium? Uh, maybe I'm too hard, but I'm, I'm willing to do I, I mean, I've been studying this now for six or seven years, written on it. Uh, so I, I think there's a good evidence for what I'm saying, but I'm not saying, you know, go cold turkey, it can't be used. It can be used for a number of good things. It really can be. I'm just not sure it's been used so much for evangelism and apologetics. But I'm a farmer. And you know, what can you know take from a farmer? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, do you plan on giving your testimony in any of the classes or someday? Or? No, I hadn't thought about giving my testimony. Oh. Why? Oh, I'm not ashamed. Um, a short version. Yeah. yeah. I grew up in the state of Maine on a farm. Uh, my dad drank more than he should. We didn't have much money. I've seen my mom cry when she was not enough food for the evening meal. Saw too many fights. And then a new pastor came to town. I live in a very small community. We didn't even have a village idiot. Uh, <laughs> and a new pastor came to town, and a word went out, come to hear the new pastor. Now, it, the, the, the church was as liberal as the day is long. Okay? Now, I'm sure God had been working in my dad's heart. I, I have to believe he was. And I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, can we go to church? Um, all my classmates were going, all two of them. <laughs> I was in a one-room schoolhouse, all eight grades. Wood floor. Didn't have indoor plumbing. <laughs> Walked uphill to school both ways. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> and so my dad went that day. It was Easter. I think I was in the, uh, I was in the sixth grade. And the gospel was not preached, the Bible was opened, and the gospel story was read. Resurrection. The Spirit of God used that to catch my dad's attention. And then for the next uh, two months, my dad, every night after chores, milking cows, would go in and read his Bible. The next night, he would uh, talk to my brother and me uh, what he had read. Now, my brother was three years my elder and wasn't, wasn't any part of it. I was a pleaser, so I listened. But by July, my dad had come to know Christ. Nobody ever witnessed to him. And when my dad became a Christian, he went around and spoke to all the farmers, all six of them. And uh, three of them came to Christ, their families. They said they wanted to have a Bible study. And the church said there'll be no Bible study in this church. 
Well, could we have it at the com- what we call the community house? No, there'd be no Bible study at the community house. So there was a big meeting one night. My dad and all the converts, all those that dad had had a part in their coming to Christ, our family was all thrown out of the church. We were told never to come back again. And uh, so we went to another church. Probably it was a good thing, I don't know. I became a Christian when I was 20. Um, and I think that's enough. So here I am talking about apologetics, right? And here's my dad who came to Christ by reading his Bible. <laughs> so I, I hope that balances it out. I think, you know, does God work that way? Sure he does. But I think that's probably the exception, not the rule. When there's no one else. Again, the power of the word. By the way, I would tell one other thing to that story. Now, what, four years ago, Nancy? Five years ago. Oh, when we went back home, and uh, she's thinking when we try to get divorced. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we went, uh, she said, uh, we, we went home, and we have a little home in Maine where, where we grew up. It's on my father's property, and he gave us a couple of acres. And uh, So uh, we went home, and uh, somebody came to me and said, by the way, did you know there's somebody preaching the gospel at that little Baptist church up the hill. I said, that can't be. I thought, now I need to, I got to put another piece of the story. When they had that meeting and threw my mom and dad and everybody out of the church, the, the de- deacon, senior deacon, it was a dynasty, the deacon, <laughs> he stood up and he said, Malcolm Little, he called him Malcolm. Of course, that was his name. Uh, he, he said, Malcolm Little believes that you can know you're going to heaven if you believe in this Jesus. He said, nobody believes that. We all know that you just walk in the footsteps of Jesus and you hope at the end of the day you go to heaven. Then we were thrown out of the church. Now, back to my story. Five years ago, somebody said to us, did you know that somebody's preaching the gospel up there? I said, don't give me. That's not happening. Not up there. So I thought we'd go and check it out for ourselves, right? So we walked in, and by the way, sat down in the same pew that my mom and dad sat in, because in those days you bought your pew. (laughs) And we sat down, and this man stood up behind the pulpit. First thing out of his mouth, held up his Bible, and he says, If you believe this book, you can know that you're going to heaven if you trust Christ as your Savior. Well, I almost wept because I wondered what would my dad think. Thirty-some years of what had happened. And just remember this, folks. What had happened? Oh, that generation, my generation. The older generation has died. My generation, some went here, some went there. It's amazing. Some of them have come to Christ. They came back to their little, our little community, and now they are in, you know, calling pastors, and they're the ones in control. Who knows what God's doing, folks? So, yes, apologetics, absolutely. That's our call. But is God at work? Yes, he is. So... That's the little part of the story.
Yeah? Anybody else? You have five minutes and I won't be long. Well, maybe that's a good note to leave on. Thank you.